We are going through the book of Genesis together as a church. We've arrived at chapter 21 last week. If you remember, Mark preached last week on the early verses of, of this chapter, and I am going to look at the final 10 or so verses this morning. Um, let's just pray, shall we? Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for one another. Thank you again for this opportunity we have to go through your word. Lord, we know you are speaking to us. The issue is not that you don't speak. Lord, the issue is that often we just will not listen. Give us listening ears this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis uh, 21 is a, a book crammed full of all sorts of characters. But we need to understand that Genesis 21, like Genesis 1 to 20, and the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture is not all about people. Chapter 21 is not about Isaac, it's not about Sarah, it's not about Abraham, it's not about Hagar, it's not about Ishmael, it is about God. The Lord wants us to know one thing really in this chapter and it's simply this, God is a promise-keeping God. Remember, God had promised a son to Abraham and Sarah and after a long, long, long wait, he finally delivers. And then... Um, Later on in chapter 21, God promises to uh, protect Ishmael, who'd been kicked out of the family home. And again, God keeps his promises. So as we come to the few verses we're going to read in a minute, just bear this in mind, okay? God didn't promise to bless the world, didn't, sorry, didn't just promise to bless the world through um, Abraham's seed. He also promised him in Genesis chapter 17 that he would give him all of the land in which he stood. Okay? So, in Genesis, God's promised Abraham a son and a country. And so far, he's delivered on the son. So let's read together from verse 22, Genesis 21. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you. So you will deal with me and, and with the land where you have uh, sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized... Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven new lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven lambs that have been set apart? He said, These seven new lambs you will take from my hands, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. And so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of God. Amen. Now, not one single preacher in the church wanted this text. That's why Jason's laughing at me. Um, because 
There's not really that much going on at first glance, is there? And what is going on, you're thinking, what's it got to do with us? But there is so much going on, actually we can miss a lot of things uh, at first reading. So I'm not going to make any eye contact with Gretchen, who I sent a structure to earlier this week, which is no longer relevant. Uh, It's sort of there, Gretchen, because I changed my mind. So I've got three points, but I'm going to go through things as systematically as I can in short paragraphs, okay? There's a lot going on. First thing I want us to notice in this text is simply this. God's power is recognized. So we've got this dude, Abimelech. He's the king of Shechem. He's the king of an area that will one day go on to be part of the promised land. All right, remember, Abraham doesn't own anything yet. But he's traveling in this guy's land. He's living there temporarily. He comes to Abraham in verse 22, and he says, God is with you in all that you do. Now, that is a pretty big statement for a pagan king to make. Okay, this guy's not a believer. Follow the Lord. But he says, God is with you in all that you do. And this visit, by the way, this meeting with Abimelech and Abraham happens five years after Genesis 21. And Abimelech has obviously been keeping an eye on Abraham. And remember again, he's allowed Abraham to freely wander his land. And during the past five years, Abraham has grown rich. He's got more people in his tribe. He's becoming more powerful. And now Isaac has been born. This kid, so a, a couple, one's 100, one's 90. You better believe that Abimelech and every other ruler around has heard of this great miracle. Okay, so as, this, as we get into these verses, Abimelech pitches up outside Um, Abraham's tent to pay him a visit. And so has he just turned up to praise God then? What is he there for? Well, we get a clue when we read that Abimelech doesn't turn up on his own, does he? Who does he turn up with? He turns up with the commander of his army. So he turns up with his right-hand man. He turns up with his bouncer. So it's quite possible that Abimelech is getting concerned about Abraham's growing power and influence in his land. Abraham could become a problem to Abimelech, particularly with this God of his, who seems to be working all these miracles in his life. And Abimelech here is just coming to check out and to to take care of his own. What's this fellow Abraham's agenda? What's he all about? Maybe he'd heard Abimelech the promise that God had made concerning the promised land. And remember, the promised land at this moment in time is Abimelech's land. You wouldn't blame the guy for being paranoid, would you? One thing for certain, Abimelech is spooked. Look at verse 23. Now swear to me, he says, before your God... That you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show me, show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. In other words, don't you get any idea about screwing me and my family over? 
Why, why would he say that? He says, remember, I treated you as, with kindness and respect. Don't start a war here. That's why his commander's with him. You start a war, Abraham, and we're prepared to go down fighting. And so Abimelech recognizes God's power. But what he doesn't recognize is Abraham's um, character. He doesn't have any respect for Abraham. And that brings me to my second point. Why not? Because Abimelech remembers Abraham's past sins. Often when we think about Abraham in the Bible, we think of he's, he's a noble man, a man of deep faith, loved, respected by all. But actually, Abraham was not loved and respected uh, by all. He, to, to the rulers of his day, he was a liar. He was deceitful. He was a man whose word was not to be trusted. Back in Genesis 12, those of us who've been with, with us all the way through, back in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah traveled to Egypt to escape a famine. The problem for Abraham was that Sarah was a bit of a looker, and he was worried if he got into Egypt and Pharaoh got a look at his wife, he'd get murdered and she'd be taken against her will. So what he does is he convinces Sarah to say that she's his sister. And so what happens is, they go to Abraham's court. Abraham says, this is my sister, Sarah. Pharaoh takes her, puts her into his harem, and in exchange, Abraham gets some livestock, a bit of cattle. Now, God is angry about this. And so he punished Pharaoh by sending plagues upon his house. All this is in Genesis 12. And then Pharaoh discovers that the reason for his suffering is that Sarah is really Abraham's wife. So he rebukes Abraham, hands back Sarah, kicks them out of Egypt. That's Genesis 12. Abraham sells his wife for a few horses and a camel. Genesis 20 is 25 years later. And Abraham does exactly the same thing to this Abimelech. Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister to save his skin. Abimelech sleeps with Sarah, but God visits him in a dream, warns him that if you continue to sin like this, you will die. So he hands Sarah back to her husband and rebukes him for his lies. And as a kindness, Abimelech doesn't kick him out of the country, but he lets him and his family live freely in the land. Okay? So here's the point. Abraham's witness as a man of God is in the toilet in chapter 22. The guy is a rat. That guy who passes himself off as a Christian sell his wife once, not once, but twice. Imagine that. He even learned his lesson twice to save his own skin. He had the opportunity to show two extremely powerful kings what a Christian ought to look like, and he blew it. And we get into uh, Genesis uh, 21 and verse 23. Now you know why Abimelech's asking the question. Swear to me, you'll not deal falsely with me. 
His track record is not very good. His testimony is in bits. And you know, how many of us in this room who claim the name Christian have ever made a mistake in their life that they wish they could go back and correct? Everyone, I'm going to guess, Christian or not. Maybe there's something in your life, it, maybe it's a conversation you wish you could take back. Maybe it was something you did that you wish you hadn't done. Or maybe it was something you didn't do that you wish you had done. And then what happens? People like Abimelech come along and they've got long memories, usually friends and family, and they cast this stuff up to us, don't they? Some of us, maybe we've blown our witness in some circles. I expect there's a lot of regret in this room over things we've done and said in our lives. If only we could take it back. So we all know as human beings what it's like to live with guilt and regret. And it's worse when we claim to follow Jesus because we destroy our witness with our sinful behavior and the shame can eat away at us. And our unbelieving family and friends, they love to bring it up to us. They deny their own sin. They forget their own mistakes quickly enough. Yet they remember every sordid detail of ours. And in Abimelech's mind, Abraham is a coward. But the problem for him is that the man that Pharaoh met in Genesis 12, the man who Abimelech met in Genesis 20, is not the same man anymore in Genesis 21. This man's a braver man, a wiser man, a godlier man. Abimelech has already said, I see that God has been at work in your life. But what Abimelech didn't see was that God had also been at work in Abraham's heart. Yes, this brings me to my third point. Abraham was a changed man. Look, um, I'll be careful what I say here, but I'll be vague. Once every, I don't know, five to ten years or so, I might return back to Yorkshire for a family funeral or, or, or a wedding, whatever. And, you know, people are, I see people there, friends, lads, and lasses I used to hang out with when I was a young lad, and all sorts of people. And it's the same story after, 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 uh, every time. So I'll go, we'll go somewhere that, to the afterwards party. The people will get a few drinks in them. You know what people do when they get a few drinks in them? They start telling you the truth, don't they? You can always tell what a person really thinks when you get them drunk. Not that you should get them drunk. I'm just saying when they get drunk. Okay? Anyway. Almost invariably, people begin reminiscing about the past. And particularly friends of mine will go, remember when you did this? Remember when we did that? Remember when we all did this or we went over there and you said that and you did that? And they remember all the bad stuff I did when I was young. And they don't see me 
as a 50-year-old Christian man. I'm always going to be, in their memory, that mad, angry 17-year-old criminal in their eyes. But you see, I'm not that boy anymore, and I haven't been that boy for 20, 30 years. So when they talk about me as a, a youth, even I don't recognize myself anymore. God has changed me. And my family will often say, well, I, well, obviously something's happened. Your life has changed. You've got family. You've got this. You've got all these nice things. So like Abimelech, they recognize the outside changed. Like Abimelech, they fail to recognize the inside change because they can't see that. God has changed me. I don't think the same. I don't act the same. Old friends and family can disagree with my faith, but they cannot argue with or explain my totally changed life. Now, on the other side of that coin, many of my friends and, and some family members haven't changed at all in 30 years. They've grown older, bolder, fatter, grayer, but no wiser, still selling drugs, still jumping about, ducking and diving for a bit of cash for the weekends, still in and out of jail. Hardly any of the men, boys I grew up with, who are now men, see their children. They've not changed at all. They've changed houses and partners, but inside they're still the same, and that is pretty depressing. True Christians are always changing as their relationship to Jesus deepens over time. Sometimes the change is spectacular, right? Everybody loves a good testimony, don't they? I used to be a murderer, but now, you know, I love Jesus. Sometimes the change is spectacular, but sometimes, in fact, most of the time, change happens in small pieces over a long period of time. And I know that some of us in the room are very new to the faith, and maybe you worry that you've not changed quickly enough or drastically enough. Maybe some of us are still running around sinning. It's hard to say no to family or friends when they want to go out and get high or drunk or both. When the lads want to go in town and, you know, sleep with as many girls as they can. It's difficult. But when we sin, we must quickly repent, pick ourselves up, talk to a mature believer, keep close to the Lord's people, and trust me, over time, change will happen. And the key is patiently persevering when some days we take five steps back. And we all grow at different speeds but we're all growing. And if we're still as angry, bitter, jealous, or proud as we were, let's say, five years ago, then the Bible has this to say to us. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And the only thing that could restore Abraham's ruined gospel witness in front of Abimelech is the same thing that can only restore ours. A patient, consistent, godly 
walk with Jesus. And we don't like that because it sounds boring, because it's not quick fix that we want. Take two of these and it'll be better tomorrow. It's a long, long haul over decades. It takes time and patience to win back those we have previously damaged over many years. Being saved, getting saved, it doesn't turn you into a super dad or a super mom or a super wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or auntie or uncle. I mean, anybody out in my inclusive language? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't wipe clean our reputation as a liar or a gossip. Abimelech had been observing Abraham for years. And over time, he'd seen God is working and the man who deceived him and lied to the king of the Egyptians. Here's a little word of hope for all of us. Just because we've sinned, by the way, just because we've ruined our witness more than one time, does that not mean that we will never again receive blessing from the hand of God. A failure in certain area, certain areas does not necessarily cut us off from being fruitful once again for the Lord. That's a good promise, right? God can still use us to impact the society around us. It might take many years to recover a ruined witness, but it can be done if we walk faithfully with the Lord. Our mistakes, our sins, do not have to mean the end of our fruitful service for the Lord Jesus. I've said this before, I'll say it again. A leopard cannot change its spots, but Jesus can. Because that's what Jesus does. He changes leopard spots. He gives us not only a second chance, but a third chance, a fourth chance, and so on. The Bible is clear. If we confess our sin, he forgives our sin. He's not like family and friends who grip onto the, our offenses against them for dear life. When we confess them, he forgives them, it's done. Your past, our past, does not have to define us. We don't have to be imprisoned in the dark cell of depression and guilt and shame over past wrongs. If we bring them out into the light, then Jesus will deal with them, and then we can begin to live as children of <clears throat> the light. That's the, that's the, that's the, the changed man. <clears throat> Next, notice what happens. An oath is sworn, and uh, it's very short and sweet. Verse 24, Abraham answers Abimelech. He says, I swear it. An oath is made. And then comes the, uh, I think, the real reason behind Abimelech's visit is in verse 25. Abram's dug a well. Some of Abimelech's men had seized it from his men. So if Abimelech really wants peace, then now's the time to prove it. Why the big deal over a well? Well, these men were meeting 
in the desert. That's where Abraham was camped. What's the rarest thing in the desert? <laughs> Anyone remember that from geography? It's not a mummy, it's some water. In that context, and in the same today, water was more valuable than gold. Okay? This could easily have turned into a war. In the same way, nations go to war over oil now, don't they? It's a big deal. An oath is sworn, and then in verse 32 we read, a covenant is made. The oath is between the two of them. The covenant is between three people. Abimelech, Abraham, and God. A covenant is much stronger than an oath. This covenant is sealed with seven lambs in verse 28. Abimelech is confused. What's this all about, he says in verse 29. Abraham responds in verse 30. These seven new lambs you'll take from my hand, that this may be a witness to me that I dug this well. In other words, that I own this well. Why is it so important? Let me tell you why it's so important. This well is the first piece of the promised land that Abraham now owns. He's got the son, and now he's seen the beginnings of the promise for the land. And then we read that God's eternal character is declared in verses 33 and 34. Abram plants a tree. Again, is that important? I think it is. I'm not a gardener. I did my research. The tamarisk is a tree that grows all year long in desert regions and offers shade to weary travelers. So you've got a tree of rest near a life-giving well. And it's in this place Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The, main, the name meaning that God never changes, God never dies, God is eternal. Therefore, the name Yahweh is the great I Am. We read about God in the book of Revelation. He is the God who is, who was, who is to come. He is the Almighty. In other words, Men come and go, kings come and go, nations come and go, wells come and go, trees come and go. In fact, we live like this, like, like, like this is all there is to our lives. Gather possessions, gather trinkets. We fight over material things that, that rust and break down. But Abraham wants to remember and proclaim that God exists forever. Only God's unchangeable. Only God's word is to be trusted. Only God's promises are fulfilled. And God's covenant with us, likewise, is eternal. And that leads us to one single place, which is where it should always lead us, and that's to Jesus, right? Because, let me end with the gospel hope. In John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, Jesus was sitting by another well that Jacob had dug long ago. And by that well, he meets a Samaritan woman, despised by the Jews. She's a pariah, outcast in her community, multiple lovers. And he asks her for water. 
And she's, she's surprised when he talks to her. She says this in John 4, 13 to 14. Oh, sorry, Jesus says this. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from this, uh, the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up for him in eternal life. Is that how you feel about life? You tried everything for that sense of spiritual fulfillment. Relationships, jobs, sex, money, whatever. You've tried it all. You've attempted, maybe you've tried to go to church before. You've tried this religion or that religion or some new age stuff. Meditation, whatever. The Spiritist Church. You try it all for this peace that you're fighting for. You cannot quite explain to people what it is you're looking for without, them make, without it making you sound stupid. And so you keep it locked inside. And like the rest of this world, you pretend that your life is all right. But really inside, you know deep down something's missing. But nothing works. Jesus says that it will never work. Doesn't matter what we try to quench our spiritual thirst, Jesus said, the only thing that can quench it is me. When we drink from the well of the world, we're drinking poisoned water and we're always going to be thirsty. There's, not, there's never enough drugs to satisfy us, or drink, or sex. Doesn't matter how many times you go to the gym, how many diets you do. There's not enough money in the planet to keep us happy. There's enough money on the planet to keep us occupied and distracted, but not really happy. And the only person who can quench our spiritual thirst is Jesus, and that's why Jesus has come. He says, I have come to give life. I've come to give it abundantly. I've come to give it eternally. And that's why we're, we're to drink, the Bible says, from the well of the word of God. If we hunger and thirst for Jesus and we open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to the gospel and to the scriptures, then we will find not only salvation, but satisfaction. Jesus Christ is the Lord, the eternal God. Jesus is the one Abraham proclaims in verse 33. Jesus is the one who even a godless king recognized in verse 22. So let me end with 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. This is the Lord's word to us, to Christians. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so how are we to live as Christians? He tells us, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as Abraham is in this text, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
You say you're a Christian, live as a Christian. And when you sin, and when we sin, and we will, sometimes big, huge, massive, horrific, public failures, sometimes the little secret snidey ones we're getting away with, we think, when no one is watching. All of those, if we take them to Christ, can be forgiven. And all of us, regardless of how far we've fallen in life, if we will only come to Jesus, stick close to the Lord's people, and keep faithfully walking in obedience. Who knows, in the years and decades left, if that's what God grants to us, you may well turn around all of your unbelieving family and friends as they see the reality of a life truly changed by the Lord. Amen.